0: Good morning. How are you guys? We good? Awesome. Well, like Brendan said, my name is Brad. I'm the student ministry pastor at Frontline up at on the north end of town, and I am so excited to be here with you guys this morning. Um, I want to take... Hi. <laughs> I want to take just a second to just affirm your pastors here. Um, I have the chance to work with Uh, Brendan and with John and Renee on um, almost a a daily basis and God is doing some really incredible things in your community here and I just love those guys so much. I get the opportunity to watch your services and your sermons every single week and it has just been so cool to see how God is moving in this community over this last year through you guys and through your pastors as well. Um, And so as we get started today, I want to just start by sharing a story with you guys. I want to take you back to this last Christmas My wife, Sam, was traveling to North Carolina to visit her family. She has family and friends that live there. Um, And while there, she was visiting them for the holidays. She was attending a wedding there. And on her way home from that trip, she was landing in the airport to reach her connecting flight. And everything's pretty normal. And as she's landing, as the plane lands on the tarmac, the captain comes on the speaker. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Atlanta. And then he says... Unfortunately, it appears the airport is completely without power right now. I don't know any more than this, but just hang tight on the plane here and we'll get you out as soon as we can. We'll give you an update as soon as we know what is happening. And so Sam sends me a text and she says, hey, I'm I'm stuck on the airplane right now. There's no power in the airport, but she's like, "My, my connecting flight's not for another two hours, so I should be good. I'll just keep you updated when I know what's going on. And so what she thought was going to be a few minutes waiting on the airplane to get off ended up becoming five hours of waiting on this airplane. I I think they said there were somewhere around 1,000 planes waiting to be deplaned as the busiest airport in the country was completely without power. You may remember seeing this on the news. Well, eventually, after five hours, Sam got off the plane, only to enter the airport and see a scene that she describes as something like a Die Hard movie. Right? Like there's... There's no power in the airport. It's dark. The only thing she can see is from the emergency strobes flashing ahead. It's it's freezing cold in there. It's completely crowded. It is utter and complete chaos, and nobody has answers as she's waiting for what to do next. Now, the good news is that after 26 hours of no sleep, 12 hours in a powerless airport, and five hours on the plane, she eventually made it home without dying in the airport that day. I probably would have died because I'm dramatic and not good in situations like that, but she survived. She is a trooper. But one of the things that we talked about quite a bit after this experience was this dilemma that she felt while she was waiting in the airport. Like, she was living in this tension of, do I stay in the airport where there's no food, there's no water, I'm 26 weeks pregnant at the time, and I have no sleep, Or do I risk leaving my ticket behind and my luggage behind, navigating the mess that would be trying to find transportation in a hotel in this chaos and take that risk? Like, what do I do in that moment? What's the right thing to do? And she didn't know what the clear answer was for her in that moment. And as I reflect on that dilemma that my wife went through this past December, I think about my own life and how life is full of dilemmas. Like we have small dilemmas, like am I an iPhone person or an Android person? The right answer is iPhone by the way. I just threw some shade there. Or do I like Coke or Pepsi or Chipotle or Qdoba? Like there's small little dilemmas that we navigate every single day. But then there's there's bigger dilemmas that I navigate and maybe you do too. Like what does it look like to follow Jesus in a culture where there is sin and brokenness all around? What does it look like to engage moral and social and political issues in a way that reflects the person of Christ? What does it look like to seek truth in a culture that elevates agenda over facts? Like how how do we live in a culture that is so broken and so sinful? And if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know that we're in a series all about the life of Daniel right now where we're looking at this question of what it means to live against the grain. And so the first week, John talked about Daniel and how his friends didn't eat the king's food and they had a specific diet that they were eating and how God blessed and worked through that. And then last week, David spoke out of Daniel 5 and he talked about, um, he talked about the writing on the wall and, and how King Belshazzar was overthrown. Well, we're going to backtrack a little bit and we're going to be in Daniel 3 today. And we're going to talk about perhaps one of the most famous stories in all of scripture, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rackshack and Benny, if you are a VeggieTales fan. By the way, how many of you guys have seen the VeggieTales, Rackshack and Benny? So quite a few of us. As an adult, thinking back to that story, there is so much brilliance in the VeggieTale creators telling kids that vegetables are good and chocolate bunnies are bad. It's like, eat your vegetables, kid. It's a subliminal messaging. you parents all are evil geniuses, just so you know. But Uh, It's so brilliant. But that's the story that we are going to be in today, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three boys who face a dilemma in their life that you and I can only imagine. And so if your your Bible's with you today, the text that we're in is Daniel chapter three, and we're going to start in verse four. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language. I feel like I have to loudly proclaim that. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Nothing like a high stakes game, right? Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the here we go again, horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the province Over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, Your Majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So these three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are faced with a profound dilemma in this moment. Do I bow and live, or do I stand and die? What do they do in this moment? How do they have the courage to stand against their culture and live into this idea? Well, I want to set up some context for you of what is happening here because it's actually really profound. So you know from the last couple weeks that the Hebrews are in exile in this period, right? And so their names have been stolen from them, their identities, the way they worship. Everything's really been taken from them, and they've been expected to kind of assimilate into the Babylonian culture. And if you look at the story of Scripture, Babylon, in general, actually stands as a symbol of injustice and oppression throughout the entirety of Scripture. Like, literally, from Genesis to Revelation, Babylon stands as a symbol of injustice. In fact, the very decree of King Nebuchadnezzar to worship the Statue of Gold was a direct act of oppression on the Hebrew people. Because everyone else present would have had no issue or no beef with bowing down to the statue. In fact, part of pagan religions were to pay homage to other gods. It would have been perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable. But for the Hebrew people, this was a profound dilemma to bow down and worship this god. One commentator describes Babylon and the symbol of injustice this way. When he says, Babylon is a dominating power. She demands worship and allegiance. She blasphemes God that is, she takes God's position to herself. She seduces the earth with her wealth and luxury. She deceives the earth with her amazing wonder. She oppresses the poor. She enslaves the very human soul, and she undergirds all of this with violence. And I think when we say the word injustice, so like, like here, Babylon is a picture of injustice. When we say the word injustice in our culture today, immediately I think it's natural for us to either want to go to like political issues or to specific issues, But before we can even begin to discuss issues as a church, we have to understand that biblically speaking, there is actually something deeper that roots all injustice together, that ties every piece of injustice in our world and in their culture as well together, and that is this. The root cause of injustice is broken relationship. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with ourselves, and broken relationship with other people. You see, when God created the world in Genesis, everything was profoundly good. In fact, Hebrews would have understood the relational dynamics of everything that God created. See, God looked at all of these different relationships, and they were good, and they were thriving. But then in Genesis 3, we see this interruption. We see this broken relationship happen as Adam and Eve sin. This this idea of shalom or perfect wholeness and relationship and harmony is all of a sudden shattered when Adam and Eve decide to eat the fruit and sin enters the picture. And immediately we see these three broken relationships at play. Adam and Eve hide from God immediately. It's a broken relationship between them and him. They feel shame because they're naked, broken relationship within themselves, and they blame each other. They pass the blame around. Immediately broken relationship with each other. And then the story from Genesis to Daniel is the spiral of injustice. The next generation brother is murdering brother. We see famine and plague. We see um, sexual assault and rape and abuse. We see war. Literally 13 chapters after the fall, nations are at war with each other. I know this is heavy. I know this feels heavy. But this we have to understand how deeply injustice is rooted throughout the scriptures. And then we get the picture of Babylon. And here is King Nebuchadnezzar. And he establishes himself as a great king, almost ready to take the place of God. Broken relationship. And he oppresses the Hebrew people and he steals their identities from them. And we see this injustice at play. Moving on in the text here, in, chapter, in verse 13, it says this Furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar's a little bit of a drama king. He's he's kind of all over the place. He's hot and cold. And there are a few people in scripture that you can see really their personalities jump out of the page like you can with him. And so these three men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. By the way, that's Hebrew satire. Like the, the author of Daniel is actually trying to sound funny in that moment. I don't know if it translates or not. But they're trying to paint the ridiculousness of this picture. So if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Do you hear the pride and the arrogance in his question? What God can rescue you from me? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Listen to this next statement. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. That is a powerful, powerful statement of faith. Even if God does not rescue us from this furnace, we know him. We know what he's capable of doing In this moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they chose to be like no other people around them because they serve a God who is like no other God. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They would would have automatically been thinking about the stories of their ancestors. They would have been thinking about the commandments that that God gave Moses. Like, Like, I am Yahweh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol for yourself. Don't even use my name without reverence and purpose and awe. I am your identity as a people. I am everything to you. But not only would they have thought about who God was, they would have thought about what God has done for them as a people. right? God gave Abraham a promise of abundant blessing. He called Moses out of a fiery bush to go deliver oppressed people. He miraculously delivered the the Israelites out of Egypt. By the way, Deuteronomy actually calls Egypt a fiery furnace. So he delivers them out of Egypt. He speaks out of the fire at Sinai and promises his unending faithfulness to his people and asks for theirs in return. You see, this is the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up for. This is the God that they worship, a God who fights for the oppressed, who hears the cries of his people, and who moves powerfully on their behalf. So going back to the text here in verse 23, King Nebuchadnezzar binds these men, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, "'Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire?' They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Now, scholars debate... Who exactly is in the fire with these three? Who is the fourth person? Some argue it's, it's one of God's angels. Others argue it's actually the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. We don't know for sure who is in the fire with these three men. But what we do know is that God did not abandon his people in the fire. And that is the point of the story, is that God was with his people in the midst of the fire. Who is this God who walks through fire on behalf of his people? There is nobody else like him. And in this moment, when you think about all of the injustice and all of the sin that has preceded this story, we see a glimpse of shalom restored between God and his people. We see a glimpse, a small, small glimpse of the curse being reversed in the way that these people fought and stood up for restored shalom with God. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, who is not mentioned in this particular story, few people embody the words of the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah actually writes to the Babylonian exiles. And he says in Jeremiah 29, Seek the shalom of the city that you are in. Like, bring God's wholeness and his presence and his goodness to even the darkest, most desolate place that you find yourself in. Stand up for that in the culture that you are in. So what what would have happened if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have never stood in this moment? Well, Babylon Babylon would have not bore witness in this moment to the goodness and presence of God, that he is the most high God and the only God worthy to be worshipped. God's order would not have been brought to the chaos that was Babylon in this moment. Had these men never stood for restored relationship with God, we would not have this story today. And the truth is this, is that when relationships remain broken, injustice is invited to flourish. Babylon is thriving because of broken relationship between God and his people, between his people and each other. In the world that we live in, injustice thrives because of broken relationship. You see, we live in a world where it's easy to engage issues from a distance. It's easy to have opinions about different people and different issues. It's easy to post those opinions online. We live in a culture of armchair activism. How many of you have ever heard that term before? This, this perfectly embodies it. A hipster guy sitting at his computer saying, one more status light one more problem solved. The problem is that armchair activism actually engages relationships from a broken place. It engages issues from a broken place where there isn't any real cost to stand up. In fact, in, in some ways, simply just posting opinions online or saying injustice doesn't exist because it's not my experience or the experience of anybody we love is in some ways like bowing down to the idol while simultaneously tweeting that I am against bowing down to idols. It's engaging these things from the distance. There's no cost. There's no sacrifice involved. I look at, at my own life, and for many years of my life I've been really passionate about the issue of raci- racism and, and racial justice. and. I've taken many college classes on it, read many books, listened to many podcasts. I would consider myself pretty well educated on the issue of racial injustice. And I sure had opinions about it. But what I realized is that I was engaging that issue without the context of relationship with people who were drastically impacted by it. I shared this story a few months ago, but my wife and I became foster parents several years ago. One of the places that we got was a little boy who we'll call Daniel. And Daniel was a little African-American boy. And he was in our home, and we absolutely fell in love with this little boy. Well, One of the things that was unique about this particular case is that we actually became really good friends with his mom, who we'll call Krista. And we would text his mom back and forth We would exchange stories, we'd talk about life at visits, and then eventually she started coming to our home and visiting in our home with her son, which, if you know anything about foster care, that's not normal at all. And so we'd put her son to bed, and she'd stay for hours afterwards, and we'd talk, and we'd build relationship with her. And all of a sudden, there is this person in my life. There is this relationship where now issues of racism and racial injustice are not just issues that I can look at from a distance, but now I am engaging with it in my home, in real relationship where there is mess and there is cost. And our relationship with Krista has only gotten stronger ever since her son came home with her. We celebrate birthdays and holidays together. My wife and I are going to a soccer game in a couple weeks when, it, when his season starts up. But, but the thing is, is that so often we engage issues from a distance when bringing shalom to the place that we're found actually means engaging relationships up close and personal. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that we serve a God who is not an armchair activist. He's not an armchair activist at all. We see this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where he immerses himself in the situation and circumstances of his people. And he immerses himself in our situations as well. In fact, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is subtly and not so subtly pointing to the person of Jesus. Where we see a man who took on pain and suffering on our behalf so that we could experience restored relationship. Restored shalom. The cross is God's justice initiative for restoring shalom to a broken world. It is. There's no better picture of justice than the cross. In fact, Paul in Colossians says it this way. I love Eugene Peterson's words when he translates. He says this. He, Jesus, was supreme in the beginning. And leading the resurrection parade, Jesus is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, He is there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. This is a picture of restored Shalom, all because of his death, His blood that poured down from the cross. Any conversation that we have about justice or injustice has to start with the cross of Jesus. There is no justice apart from him. We're working in vain if we do not start our conversation there. And so, what do we do with this? What do we do with this with the dilemma that we find ourselves in in our culture? Well, if I were to define the dilemma, I would say it's this. Our dilemma is will we join those who conform or will we join him who renews and transforms? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story teaches us that even Babylon can experience God's restoration and his healing. Even the darkest places of our world can experience the goodness and the presence of God. And the story of scripture starts with perfect, unhindered shalom in the beginning. And we know that the, the story ends with perfect, unhindered shalom in the end. And along the way are women and men who are willing to stand up in the culture that they find themselves in to bring the shalom to even the darkest and most desolate places, to bring this restored relationship to the people and the places that they find themselves in. You see, for us as Christians, justice is not this fringe issue or this this sideline thing that we can think about. Justice is the very core of our gospel. And it has to be what motivates us when we interact with other people. This. Last year, I had an opportunity to take a group of students to Chicago on a missions trip. And we're actually going back to the same exact ministry we leave today right after this. So I'm super excited for that. But we're taking a group of students to a ministry in Chicago called Sunshine Gospel Ministries. And if you watch the news at all, you know that Chicago is is this picture, maybe the closest thing to Babylon that we have in our culture. The south side of Chicago is full of gang violence. It's full of drug abuse. There's very little economic opportunity in this area. There's a lot of tensions between community and law enforcement. It is a difficult, difficult place. And in a world where there's a lot of opinions and a lot of people willing to offer their input from a distant place stands this ministry called Sunshine Gospel Ministries that is actually seeking to bring Shalom to Chicago. In fact, The story that they shared with us, I'll never, ever forget what they did. Under one roof, they brought together all of these different community groups. They brought together gang members. They brought together uh, law enforcement and police officers. They brought together mothers. Mothers who are mourning because they've lost sons and daughters to gang violence in their neighborhood. They brought together local business leaders and church leaders and they brought all of these different groups together under one roof and they fostered a vibrant conversation about what this looks like in their culture. And what we saw happening is that um, gang members and police officers, sometimes for the first time, were talking to each other. Local business people were offering gang members apprenticeship and job opportunities to help them leave this life. Mothers... Grieving, shared their stories. And in the midst of this chaos, change is happening. This beautiful shalom is emerging because of these people that are willing to stand up in the name of Jesus at great cost, at great risk, to stand up in the Babylon that they find themselves. And this, my friends, is what it means to stand up in the midst of our Babylon to seek restored relationships that are broken, to seek restoration and healing for the most difficult parts of our world. I want to give you two applications today as we we close out, two really practical things that we can do. Number one is this. Pursue shalom with God. Pursue shalom with God. Fall in love with his word. Learn about his heart for justice, for the poor, for the oppressed. Learn about how integral this is to Scripture. This past week, we had the opportunity as part of the justice journey that some of you are part of, this discipleship journey where we take this series a little bit deeper. We had the opportunity to practice intercessory prayer where we walked through our neighborhoods and our communities praying on their behalf, pleading with God on behalf of other people. And man, man, Few things will change your perspective faster than praying for other people. Read his word, immerse yourself in his heart in this issue, in this area. And then the second thing is take that restored shalom with God and pursue it with other people. Pursue restored relationship, the world that we live in, with people who are far from him. Set an example. Be a type of person that stands up in our culture and is willing to engage in the messiness and the difficulty of relationships. Is there risk? Is there difficulty in that? Absolutely, but that is what it means to stand up and to stand out in our culture. This week is part of Justice Journey. One of the challenges that we are doing is we're actually challenging you to go out of your way for a specific person this week. Maybe that's for a coworker. Maybe it's buying them lunch or having a conversation with them and seeing how their day is going. Maybe it's looking a little bit differently at the homeless person on the street corner and seeing them as the image of God in a person worthy of dignity and worthy of love. Maybe it's going on Saturday to Byron Days, like Brendan talked about, and picking up trash and engaging in conversation and relationship with the community here that so desperately needs Jesus. I don't know what it is for you, but I challenge you in this week, in some small way, to pursue restored shalom with other people so that Babylon may witness and experience the goodness of God. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. As I reflect on my own life and and God, just seeing how you've always taken the first step to pursue healed and restored relationship with me. God, may I take that and reflect that to the people around me. May I be willing and may this church be willing to do the hard work of bringing your hope Your shalom and your healing to the darkest places of our world. God, we love you so much. And I pray that as we worship today, once again, that our worship will be from hearts that are postured in humility, a desire to learn and grow and learn more about who you are and who you are calling us to be. We pray all of this in the holy and matchless name of Jesus. And everyone said,